as part of this world tour finale, um, we're <laughs> finale. We're, <laughs> we're here with with Chris Sweeney and Chris. We're going to talk. We're we're talking about biomarkers in urothelial cancer. We've talked about biomarkers in renal cancer, and now we just wanted to talk about biomarkers in prostate cancer. Um, the first thing, uh, question I want to ask is: Has biomarker development in prostate cancer been successful? Well, that's a big question. Um, first of all, <laughs> thanks for making me the finale slash uh, the last person you thought to call. So thank you very much, boys. <laughs> um, good friend and all. So, but let's about biomarks and prostate cancer, I think is a very, very uh, active topic and very glad that we can have a conversation about it. Let's first of all talk about castration-resistant prostate cancer. And biomarkers really, really matter if it impacts treatment decisions. I think we'll all agree there. We can do prognostic biomarkers until the cows come home, but ones that can really impact on what treatments and how to treat them. So very, very clearly, 2020 marks the era where we have approvals of drugs uh, matching profile, genomic profile to drug. Um, the most uh, clear example right now is PARP inhibition in patients which have DDR uh, mutations. There are some patients who have um, clear benefit, BRCA2, biallelic somatic mutation, germline mutations. They're the ones across all the studies with all the PARP inhibitors who have the clearest evidence of benefit. Other, and Chris, I'm yeah. sorry, just to, just to dig down to that a little bit. So DDR is DNA damage repair, but that's a yes, broad, thank you. It's thank a broad you. group yep. of genes. And does everybody mean the same genes when they say DDR or is it heterogeneous? So, yeah, yeah. thanks, Brian. That's a really good sure. point to bring out so i had it off with you do, do you do good work <laughs> so BRCA2 is so like the um uh the first in class and uh that's where the, a lot of the PARP inhibitors were developed mm -hmm. in breast cancer and other cancers but with uh, um, made use of that data and led the charge in prostate cancer there are a whole host of other genes, and that's where I was just about to describe, and, but it needed the introduction as you gave it. So you've got uh, mutations in ATM, PALP-C, FANC, and things like that. So there is some biological basis to suggest that they have an underlying tumor biology that may make them susceptible. But if you go and look at the approval for um, Olaparib, which has got the – and Recaparib have both got the approvals now – They've both got different DNA, uh, DDR profiles and genes that mm. um, make them, which you may want to batch the drug to those profiles. That's a very long conversation. So some I'm much more confident in saying I think it's the right thing to do. Others, their response rates, such as with ATM, are in the 10% range. And so do you reach for chemotherapy or do you give them a chance with a PARP inhibitor? Is unknown, but um, it, you've got to look at, go look at the package label. And these, the F, Chris, the FDA gave a very permissive label, actually, for a lab rib. And Chris, oh. these are based on single arm trials. Um, yeah. What's the prognostic? Um, what's the prognostic no, no, value? Or are they randomised trials? Or? No. So the the, um, the New England Journal paper, the most profound one, was actually profound um, study <laughs> in title. Um, was actually comparing to uh, second-line hormones. Um, uh, so, uh, what was yeah. the benefit that we saw there? Um, major improvements, hazard ratios of the 0.5, 0.6 in some of the patients. Uh, and that's the, for survival? Like the bracket. Um, PFS and survival in the end, yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's clearly clinical benefit, oral pill, 
Um, and and Chris, survival benefit. In the but biomarker the, negatives, the HR negative patients, the biomarker negative patients. Is there any? Do we do we know if there's any benefit in that group as well? No, they didn't enroll. They weren't included. They were excluded. So um, broad based. Yes. Yeah, so basically, the, these were the patients accrued but had to have uh, a DDR variant in their tumor to get yeah. on. And and so that sounds to me like real progress in biomarker development in prostate mm-hmm. cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For and, sure. And so are you routinely testing all your patients for this DDR signature? And if so, which one? So by and large, I think most people would send a tumor off at some stage, preferably a castration-resistant prostate cancer specimen, uh, because the later they are, the later they, uh, the tumor is more likely to have a mutation that may predict a benefit. So, so some... Chris, can I ask, uh, sorry, just a practical yeah, question yeah. of when, mm-hmm. when, do you, when do you personally, your institution, you know, send your foundation one or Tempus? Is it, is it at diagnosis? Is it at the CRPC state with a new biopsy? Is it just before you're going to give them, say, a laparb or whatever? So you... I, by and large, it's the window of opportunity. You've got to have a biopsy, a lesion that can be biopsied. Yeah. And so I very rarely rely on the pre-hormonal therapy, initial diagnostic, um, localized tumor, because that doesn't give you the highest yield. Sure. But you um, can go back to that. Chris, the, the we, other, yeah. Chris, just before you get there, you, we can now measure circulating tumor DNA and their gardens and other technologies that can look Tom, at gene. Yeah. Tom, Tom, let me get to that. Okay. So let me do we a like cascade. We like to interrupt a lot on this podcast. I, no, no, no. I, I know that. I've learned that. <laughs> yeah, because being the last one invited, That's you right. actually get to see what, how this goes. Um, so the first thing is off the top. So if a patient comes in and the first patient to me, castration resistant, they've been managed at another facility um, and they're good for hormones, I'll actually get them on the hormonal therapy and say at some stage we will get you uh, do a biopsy. However, the other thing to do is actually send them off for germline testing. NCCN guidelines, the rate of finding a mutation in a gene um, at the germline is pretty high, when maybe in the 10, 15% range. Um, that may be a bit high. But they're for cascade testing. And if you find a germline mutation, you know that they would be eligible as well for some of these DDR uh, targeted therapies, the PARP inhibitors. So Germline testing in the patient with advanced disease, as well as uh, pairing if they don't have a germline mutation or you don't have that data, at some stage getting a biopsy. However, as you're pointing out, um, I know you were trying to get there, Tom, that a lot of these men have (laughs) bone metastases uh, only disease, and it may be difficult to get disease from that. Um, A number of these patients do have uh, circulating tumor DNA, but not all, but it is a potential strategy. So it's another matrix that can be explored. But if all of those are not viable options, um, you can always resort to the localized hormone-sensitive tissue that could be possibly have been done 10 years ago but may not reflect the CRPC state. So it is difficult to get the biopsy, um, the data in some patients. Other patients, it's a slam dunk, but you've got to keep trying. Chris, let's, let's, let's move on to MSI High. So um, you... Uh... You led a study looking at teslizumab in unselected patients, which didn't hit its primary endpoint of survival. Yet pembrolizumab does have a label in MSI high, um, which includes prostate cancer. Um, what's the role of pembrolizumab in that population and how do you measure it? So we're getting into the agnostic state. Um, that 
a disease agnostic approvals, if you would. So prostate cancer, if you're MSI high, um, and even if TMB high based on the labels, a person could possibly write for uh, pembrolizumab now. Now, um, there is evidence of some patients who have some benefit, and there's a great paper by uh, Abida from Memorial Sloan Kettering where it's probably about 5% of late-stage castration-resistant disease that have it. And um, and of that, about five, uh, 50% of those patients have some degree of a response to PD-1 or PDL one inhibition drug not otherwise specified. So it's worth putting in the panel. So five years ago, we had nothing. Now you do a biopsy and you've got maybe 10% of patients, maybe higher, depending on what the biomarker is for, for the DDR. And then there, there's another 5% who may have MSI high. So the panel testing allows us to... Now look at maybe at most one in five patients who may have um, actionable mutation. Um, that's a very generous number. It's probably closer to 10%, but let's be generous and call it maybe 20% have an actionable mutation between MSI high. The other one to put in the mix, which may help sneak us up to uh, that, is CDK12 mutations. I personally have patients who have had CDK12 mutations who have benefited from PD-1, PDL one inhibition, but you've got to petition the insurance companies and there's some reasonable um, uh, case reports that support that. However, you, as you allude to the study of enzalutamide uh, with or without atezolizumab, is a randomized phase three study. We can actually get to see how frequent these mutations are in a large 790 patient study. We can see if that ties to prognosis and predictive benefit. And that's work in progress. But at this stage, castration-resistant disease, I go for a biopsy, um, look for the DDR mutations, look for um, other MSI and tumor TMV burden and see if you've got another treatment option. I say to patients, we do this because we've got our standard therapies and it's a chess game. We've got our pawns like the hormones, our rooks like the chemotherapies and a couple of different types. And we, it, we've got to be strategic as to which one we use and when. And it's chest piece and the tumor biopsies and the clinical trials can help us put some more chest pieces on the chest board is how I, I use the analogy. I love the analogy. I love it. Just, just, just yeah. for, for my benefit, which, which is the best chest piece again? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, never mind. The case well, Tom, so, never. Tom, the pawn can sometimes take the queen. Depends if you use it strategically. Listen oh, to All right, it, let's get back to biomarkers. So Excellent. Do you want to talk about ARV7? That's another big topic that yeah, so I think I, we need to um, cover. Yeah, ARV7, I think, is uh, uh, can be completely substituted by clinical intuition. We what, saw t- this. Tell the audience what it is. Yeah, give us a basic primer on it's it. It's a splice variant of the antigen receptor. And what it does, it basically is identifies tumors that are far less likely to respond to a hormonal therapy, um, such as abiraterone or enzalutamide. What do we do now? And how do, you, how, do you measure, how do you measure it, Chris? Uh, you send off circulating tumor cells, and they do, uh, some people do an RNA, some people do a um, protein evaluation of the circulating tumor cells. It's very complicated. Right. But really, I don't do it. Why do I not do it? <laughs> because um, it's very, very rare in patients who have first line, starting their first line therapy for castration resistant prostate cancer. It comes on after you've added Abby or Enza. So the rate of positivity goes up after a person's been on Abby or Enza. Mm-hmm. It's very, 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 very rare, like well, common 
in uh, hormone sensitive when you're starting the hormones for the first time. So who are the patients more likely to have it after they've been on abiurenza for a while? Those who had a short response to abiurenza, those who've got liver metastases, a low PSA. And we know from the CARD study is that if a patient has progressed on uh, abiraterone, their tumor has progressed on abiraterone or enzalutamide, and they've had docetaxel, and you switch them to the other hormones, they're much likely to do better with going to cabazitaxel than the mm -hmm. hormone switch. Where does the ARV7 play a role in that? Just look at the eligibility criteria, follow that for the CARD study, and it really does not um, help you choose whether you need to go for a hormone switch or a chemotherapy. Just so you're look saying at by, clinical... the, by, the, by the time it's relevant, you sort of already know clinically, and we know yeah, exactly clinical practice. Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, there will be a lot of people who hopefully they don't listen to this podcast um, who will have issues with that comment. And hopefully the people <laughs> listening are the people who agree with me. So, <laughs> um, or maybe I've made a few people agree with me after all this. Who knows? So that's where we're at with castration-resistant prostate cancer biomarkers, I think. Oh, Chris, also, just for pay, for, let P10, P10, P10. Yeah, can P10, we talk about P10? Yes, of course we can. Is I'd it, like to um, talk about that. So P10 um, can be measured uh, in, by protein levels at immunohistochemistry and looking for lack of staining or genetic mutations, P10 loss on, um, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, exome analyses. So that's a really interesting point uh, where we've now got a study that's just been reported by press release, the best type of re uh, report, where <laughs> patients were first-line therapy were randomized to abiraterone plus or minus um, an ipad assertive, an AKT inhibitor, and stratified by P10 loss. There seems to be a benefit per the press release in the patients who have tumors with P10 loss. Um, that was measured by immunohistochemistry. And we don't have time on this podcast, but what's your, um, what's your cut point for P10 loss? Long conversation. Do you do it by hemis chemistry? Do you do it by um, uh, tumor? Bottom line is it looked like the, there was a time delaying the time to radiographic progression, tracking with the P10 loss by immunohistochemistry analysis. But interestingly enough, nearly all of those tissues are probably from the localized hormone sensitive because P10 loss happens early and there's very few patients who go from P10 intact to P10 loss. There are a few from hormone sensitive to castration mm. resistant, unlike the DDR, where there's a, it's much more common in the CRPC tissue than it is in the hormone-sensitive uh, tree. So, so maybe a signal, but, but more, well, obviously we need more data from the trial so, and so, more work. Yes, so yes Chris, but, but it's going the right direction. Yeah. So Chris, you talked a bit about this DDR signature. You've talked about MSI high, uh, AR, um, V7, uh, and now protein expression of P10. Um, actually, there's quite a lot going on in prostate cancer as it currently stands. Yeah, those, you listen, uh, um, yeah Tom. Yeah, yeah just tell, <laughs> tell me a bit about um, what's going on in hormone-sensitive disease. Can we determine from biomarkers who should be getting upfront chemotherapy uh, and who should be getting upfront um, hormone combination therapy? Should we make that a separate podcast or do you want I, to keep going? No, okay, no, you keep going. You do talk about what you want to talk about. Don't worry about my questions. Ignore those. <laughs> no, no they're, good, good, no, they're good questions. I mean, we could just like carve one out for related castration resistance and another one for hormone sensitive, hormone sensitive because well, it, it's, an, it's another long conversation, actually. What's next on your agenda? Talking to you. No, what, what, what biomarker would you like to talk about next? <laughs> um, the, whole, the hormone sensitive space and all the work that's going on there. That's another okay. good 15-minute conversation. Okay, let's do that now. Okay, hang it up.
No, 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 no. Let's I'll keep going. Yeah, let's do it now. You've okay. got, we've, got, okay. we've got ten minutes. We've got ten okay, minutes. good. Okay, we can who's organising this? <laughs> I thought right. I was, uh, let's do three. it. Give us okay. a six-minute version of hormones. So, a patient presents. Hormone. So, right now, a patient presents to a, uh, to the clinic, and they have. We actually have some quite impressive clinical variables, which can really tell us the outlook of a patient with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. If a patient presents with de novo metastatic disease and high volume disease per the charted definition or whichever one, liver metastases, lots of bone metastases, their median survival with hormonal therapy alone is uh, three years. If on the other extreme, a patient presents with two bony metastases three, four, five, ten years after the prostatectomy or radiation, so metachronous low volume, their median survival with hormonal therapy, do you know what it is, boys? Do you know? Do you know? Do you want to take ten years? Eight years. Good work. Pretty close. I yeah. love the way you overguessed it, Brian, to really, to really, <laughs> to really deflate his argument. I spent a lot of my life thinking about how I want to do it as beautifully as you just did that. Thank I you. just wish I could do that as well as you. So what's interesting <laughs> is that you've got the middle ground. So patients here have one or the other. So they're de novo low volume or high volume uh, relapse. Their median survival is about four and a half, five years. Mm -hmm. And that's across charted study, GTUG study, GTUG 15, and a hospital registry data that we had at Dana-Farber. So we've actually got some pretty good clinical variables there for prognosis, just based on time of relapse and slash oligometastatic nature or not. So that's what we're up against, and we have to do better than that. Well, can we get predictive biomarkers? So what we have, and this is a bit controversial, we see that in patients who have low-volume disease, metachronous, who aren't accrued to the stampede, but in charted in GTOC 15, their median, the, the hazard ratio for docetaxel was 1.0. Granted, the numbers are about 200 for that, but there's no hint of benefit. In the high-volume charted, the de novo high-volume, the hazard ratio is about 0.86, so a hint of a benefit, but not statistically significant. But you can see there's a bit of a watershed between the high volume and the low volume, whether they're de novo or re relapse. So it speaks to, you can see something going on just in the way they relapse. Now, the Stampede, they went back and they looked at their patients by high and low volume, and they're all de novo, and they see a treatment benefit in the low volume of about 0.76. Now, that's retrospective. Charter was prospective. So are you it saying was... it's really all clinical biomarkers? At this stage. Now we need yeah. to do better than that. Yeah. And what we have got is um, a germline. There's some very promising this, work. This from... second podcast could have been very short, Chris. <laughs> no, no, it couldn't be. No, no, no. So, again, if by the end of this, you will go, oh, well, that's quite good. So we're trying well, to tell do us what's it. coming. Tell us what's promising in the HSD three B one. So you mentioned oh, yeah. your previous work colleague uh, yeah. Nima, Nima Shuifi, who's been looking at this. Basically, this is an enzyme germline, and if people have a variant, they make their circulating test androgens much more than patients who do not have a variant of that. So what we found is that the low volume charted patients who had the variant that makes a lot more extra gonadal androgens had less benefit with hormonal therapy. So it was prognostic and predicted for a poor outcome with testosterone suppression alone. Now, the next question is, are they the patients who have the greater benefit for adding enzalutamide or abiraterone to be determined? But we've got some very promising data and we can actually ask that question. And Nima has got a DOD grant in collaboration with us and the Enzymet team from the ANZUP study. That's the first cap off the rank. The next one is... Um, 
interestingly enough, we saw there was no hint of benefit in the patients who had high volume diseases, though they had a less hormone responsive disease and they needed something other than testosterone suppression. They got chemotherapy. Moving on. The, um, looking at the prostate RNA transcriptome, we actually two recent publications, one by Anas Hamid as the first author of charted specimens presented at TUASCO. We saw that using the PAM50, you may know this about basal and luminal in breast cancer. Felix Feng has led the charge and shown that basal luminal has a role in prostate. And what we saw is that the basal actually had a better prognosis than the luminal bees. And the luminal bees tended to possibly have a benefit granted as a subset out of chartered and working with Gert Atard, and we have an MCI R01 grant to now look to see in collaboration with Decipher, this um, commercial company that does the mm -hmm. RNA trans pro uh, profiling, we can then see, we've trained in the chartered to see if the, do if the luminal bees in uh, the stand axle arm got the benefit. Um, interestingly enough, there's this luminal A, Tom, you may remember this from breast cancer or you can ask your dad, is that the luminal A um, is very, very, very rarely represented in patients who have metastatic disease. So whereas there's maybe 2% of patients have luminal A, there's an even split between basal and luminal B. And Tom, I can hear you asking the question, well, what about the hormones? And I was still and, focused on the chest pieces. I was still, <laughs> I was still struggling with a rook move. So we're, so we're going to use a pawn here. It is possible that the pawns may have their better role if you're talking about abiraterone and anzalutamide or apalutamide as your pawn. So Felix Feng had a presentation using the Decipher platform suggesting that using as RPFS as an endpoint that patients who had the luminal B had, sorry, the basal B had the better outcome with the addition of the aphalutamide. So, so it sounds like there's some hypothesis generating subset analyses for the underlying biology. And are these being studied prospectively? I mean, where do you think it quick, goes? Quick. So we are, so be, because we can look at these and you heard me rant and rave in the um, renal and the prostate and bladder set, uh, podcast we just did. We actually have lined them up between enzymet, stampede, Abiyam, Stampede, Docetaxelam, and Chartered, where we're actually training in one and validating in another, just like they did for the Oncotype DX analysis yeah. for breast cancer. So we're, by having been the uh, hormone-sensitive setting where no one really wanted to develop drugs until recently, we've been able to do investigator-sponsored studies and grab right. the tumours and get, control the data and actually form these collaborations. So Right. Um, there's the an amazing yeah. collaboration between Ian Davis, Gert Atard, myself, Arun Azad, Anna Samid, um, Gert's whole team there, Marina Parry, Emily Christ. I'm just trying to give everyone's names out there. Felix Feng. Um, and we're all in this together. Alex Wyatt's doing CTDNA from these samples from um, Chartered and, sorry, from uh, Enzymet. So we've got a lot. So we've got the germline look at hormone sensitive, the HSD3B1, with some very provocative and encouraging preliminary data, which we've got to validate the transcriptome, um, and we've also, we know exome analysis from the hormones, uh, the diagnostic bar to patients who have P53 mutation, RB loss, or P10 loss, two or more of those have a very poor prognosis, and we've got a very specific question. Are they the ones who benefit from early chemotherapy? Chris, I'm going to bring the curtain down on your talk. Um, it was like two, two podcasts in one. It was yeah. like a twofer. But it's also, yeah, but it's also going to bring the curtain down, I think, on our world tour. Um, yeah, it's sad. Brian. 
Yeah, we ended it's up. It's been a pleasure traveling with you, Tom. Yeah, except for the snoring and God, the snoring. Yeah, we talked about that. I apologize. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, Chris, thanks so much for your time today. You know, I thought um, I I think that it sounds to me like there's real opportunity in prostate cancer and biomarker research. I think it's really yeah. exciting, and it's happening. It's actually happening. Good for you guys as a te- as a team sport. Thank you, Chris. See you soon. Cheers. Thanks, boys. Cheers. Bye.